0: Thanks, Tom. Hello, everybody. It is so good to be here after 18 months away. God, dear to me. For family health reasons, uh, my wife and I are still shielding a bit, so this is my first night out in a long time. Thank you very much. I intend having a good time, and I hope you do as well. Uh, but although I haven't been here in person, I have been following the, uh, both the Revive series and the Sunday Morning series, and I've been so encouraged by them. Um, I've got to, I have a sense that God's refocusing us at the minute, that he's turning our hearts and our minds towards some fundamentals of our faith, not least of which is our relationship with God himself. Um, And Tom, thanks for mentioning that uh, Knowing God course that uh, I've been putting together. Uh, When I was thinking about, what is it, Lord, that we should be talking to people about these days? And I I was reminded of something that A.W. Tozer said more than 60 years ago. He said, the most important question before Christians today is not what should I say or do, it is... What is my image of God? Do I really know my God? Who is he? What is he? What's he like? What are his attributes? How will he respond to me and the things that I do? How can I really know him and experience him in my life? And these aren't just academic questions necessary so that we could get an intellectual understanding of theology. I believe for every believer these questions touch the heart and the spirit because they affect our life our character and ultimately our destiny i certainly believe that they affect our relationship with god and the level of intimacy that we're able to achieve with god so maybe it's something that we should all be asking ourselves i know that in doing the course i've been doing it and I found it so beneficial. What is my image of God? But I've been asked to come here tonight to talk about intimacy with God, and particularly intimacy through extravagance, which might seem like a very odd topic. I know lots of Christians who would be more concerned about prudence and Faithful stewardship, rather than extravagance. But Tom told me that when he was developing this series, he said it was the title was initiated because of the story in Ma, sorry in Matthew 26, where a woman pours perfume over the head of Jesus. So that's where we're going to start. Matthew 26, verses six and seven. While Jesus was in Bethany, in the home of a man known as Simon the leper, probably somebody that Jesus had healed, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. What was the significance of this extraordinary act of extravagance? Was it an appropriate thing to do? Who was this woman and what motivated her? Well, if you read the other Gospels, we find that in John, the apostle identifies this woman as Mary of Bethany. Mary, of course, was a very special friend and devoted follower of Jesus. It appears that Mary had been taken in by her older sister, Martha, who some speculate was a well-off widow, although there's no way of proving that. And of course, Lazarus, whom Jesus raised from the dead, was their brother. We've just read about Mary anointing Jesus. And I think I'd I'd like to just shift a little bit to an earlier dinner, which was in Martha and Mary's house. Caroline spoke about this last week, so forgive me if Some of what I'm saying is a little bit of a repeat of what she said. But I think it's so important because it reveals a lot about Mary's character, her attitude, what her priorities were, and what motivated her to do what she did at that later dinner party. So I'm going to read from Luke chapter 10, verses 38 to 40. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work myself? Tell her to help. Now, I have to be honest right up front here and tell you that I so identify with Martha. Unlike unlike Caroline last week who identifies with Mary. Uh, I'm afraid I'm a, an organiser. I like to plan. I like to be a doer. Um, I can understand why Martha wanted to make sure everything was in order and, and in place. But it seems that the more Martha worked, the more worked up she became. And it's bad enough when you have to do everything yourself, but when there's somebody who you think should be helping is just not bothering, that gets even worse. And I think the irritation, the unfairness to Martha, it just builds up to the point where she suddenly explodes. Lord, don't you care that my sister's left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help. I find it interesting that Martha addressed her frustration to Jesus and not to Mary. She actually accuses Jesus of not caring about her. And she's absolutely sure that if she asks Jesus to tell Mary to help, then he will respond. He'll do the right thing. And I thought, isn't that sometimes how we are? We don't have time to be with God We don't have time to listen to God. But when things start to go wrong for us, we think we know what the answers are and we tell God what he should be doing. Certainly Martha felt that she knew how Jesus should demonstrate his care for her by lightening her load. And of course, that's exactly what we see him do, but not in the way that Martha expected. We can learn a great deal about discipleship from Jesus' response. Luke 10, verses 41 to 42. Martha, Martha, you are so worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is needed. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. Tom Wright tells us that in saying this, Jesus actually made a play on words that doesn't translate very well into the English. In essence, he said, Martha, you are preparing many dishes for us to eat, but Mary has prepared one dish that you can't fix in the kitchen. Martha was putting too much stress on the secondary th- things that were of secondary importance. She made the less important the primary focus, and she neglected to spend time on the most important thing, And that is my first challenge. When I'm seeking greater intimacy with God, where am I extravagant with my time? What is my primary focus? Instead of settling for a simple supper, Martha tried to impress with a more elaborate meal, but that wasn't the kind of extravagance that was needed. As Caroline said last week, We all have responsibilities to carry out in our daily lives, to maybe go to work, do the washing, the ironing, the cooking. And we want to do them all well, don't we? Because God is not honored by shoddy work or neglect of our duties. I think it was Dorothy Sayers who said, no crooked legs ever came out of the carpenter's shop in Nazareth. Jesus wasn't excused from his family business but he also made sure that he used his spare time exceedingly well. His priority was always to be close to his heavenly father. Mary's priority was to be close to Jesus, to listen to him, to know him more. Is that how you and I live? Or do we spend our time doing things, even good things for the church, but little time on the most important thing? being with God. I believe that Mary took every opportunity she had to be close to Jesus, to listen to his words of wisdom and revelation, to bask in the glory of his presence, and to grow closer to her God. And it's those times with Jesus that prepared her heart for what happened at the second dinner party that we read about earlier. Let me read that again. Matthew 26 While Jesus was in Bethany in the home of a man known as Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar, a very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. And in John chapter 12 we read, Then Mary poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. For six months before this dinner... Jesus had been announcing his impending death to his disciples. Not that they ever seemed to get it. Chief priests and Pharisees were planning and plotting to kill Jesus. So he'd withdrawn from public view for a while until it was time for his final visit to the Passover in Jerusalem. As usual, Jesus stops at Bethany for a few days before the Passover was to begin. So let's just imagine that scene at this dinner. Jesus and his followers, including Lazarus, are reclining around this dinner table. A large crowd of Jews had gathered, a lot of them to see Lazarus, who Jesus had raised from the dead. Others, probably townsfolk, had seen Jesus before, heard some of his very strange stories. Maybe he's going to tell them some more. Suddenly, the quiet contemplative Mary bursts in with an impulse that must have been growing in her heart for some time. She's carrying an alabaster jar. It's full of precious perfume that's been imported from India, and it's worth a year's wage. Forgetting her reserve, she brushes past the people reclining at the table, breaks the jar, and pours it over Jesus' head. Then she drips the, the last drops onto Jesus' feet, and she wipes them with her hair. This was no routine anointing. But look at the response that this act of love generated. In Matthew 26, verses 8 and 9, we read, When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste? they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. To practical men, this was a stupid, absolutely stupid waste. In fact, in John chapter 12, we're told that it was actually Judas Iscariot who objected to the waste. It said not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. But now look at Jesus' response. Why are you bothering this woman? She's done a beautiful thing for me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. I tell you the truth. Wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Jesus considered it a beautiful tribute, this act of Mary's. The word for beautiful there was kalos. It means precious, genuine. It's beautiful because it came from purity of heart and life. Unknown to Mary, Jesus said she was anointing him in preparation for burial. And the inference is that Mary's extravagant use of this perfume is more important than even selling it to give to the poor. Given Jesus' repeated statements about the poor and the kingdom blessings that they were going to come into, that probably confused his disciples quite a bit, I would have thought. And it's ironic that the name Bethany means house of the poor. So that money really could have been put to good use. But Mary's gift was given out of extravagant love and worship of her Lord. There's no escaping the challenge posed by the standoff between Mary and Judas. But for Mary, expense was of no consideration. The extravagance towards God can always provoke. It has the potential of provoking cynical criticism and opposition. Sometimes it can even come from the closest people to us. I can imagine in particular how Martha might have felt. Oh, Mary, you've gone over the top this time. Apart from the criticism of Judas about the waste, Mary and the other disciples, sorry, Martha and the other disciples, may well have been embarrassed by the extravagant and apparently outrageous behavior. You see, Mary would have had to let her hair down to wipe Jesus' feet That's about the equivalent at a modern dinner party of a woman hitching up her long skirt to the top of her thighs. Well, you can imagine the onlooker's reaction. Has she no shame? What's she trying to say to Jesus and to the onlookers? All sorts of disturbing thoughts must have been flashing around that room. How could this be honouring to God? Do you know when people decide to worship Jesus without inhibition, to pour out before him the treasures, the values, the stories, the dancing, the music, others looking on sometimes find the spectacle a bit embarrassing, even distasteful. During my Christian walk, I've been in the odd church where just raising your hand during worship time was considered a bit over the top. That's just not an acceptable thing to do, thanks. But I've also been in the church where leaping over two rows of chairs and dancing before God was an acceptable form of worship. I hear it wasn't me who did that. You'll have to ask my wife about that one. But I don't think that it's the outward display of extravagance that matters most when we worship. It's the attitude within our heart and our mind that God looks at. In John four twenty four, Jesus says to the Samaritan woman at the well, Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worship the Father seeks. True worship may be hidden in the spirit, but it has to be genuine, it has to be transparent and sincere. We're called to worship God extravagantly with our whole lives. In Romans 1 verses 1 and 2, the Apostle Paul tells us what our true act of worship should be. Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Have I gone on too long, Tom? (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Steve. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Now, presenting your bodies as a spiritual sacrifice to God sounds like a really extravagant thing to do. But in the New King James Bible, the translation reads Present your bodies a living sacrifice holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Paul's just spent 11 chapters explaining what God has done for us Christians. Amazing things. There are at least 36 things that I've counted that God did for us the instant we believed in Jesus. And Paul's saying, in view of all of that, Isn't it just reasonable that you should present your bodies as a spiritual sacrifice? Having the Holy Spirit of God inside of you is meant to make a difference. Not just a little bit, but literally to metamorphose us. That's such a challenge. Walking closely with God demands zeal. A heart that loves him and will do extravagant things to draw closer to him. In Leviticus, we're told that the Israel's priests, they had to ensure that the fire on the altar where the, the sacrifices were burnt, that altar must burn constantly. It must never, ever go out. In similar fashion, it's our responsibility To ensure that our fire, our zeal for God never goes out. Sadly, I know how easy it is for zealous, zealous passion to fade. And if we're honest, we probably all know something of that. We even see it in scripture. Paul spent two years teaching the young Ephesian church. He obviously grew very close to them. When we read his letter to the Ephesians, it's full of his expanding revelations about God's glorious church. He's got great love and hope for the church. And yet, within matter just of decades, we read this in Revelation 2, verses 2 to 5. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, Jesus says, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you can't tolerate wicked men, that you've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You've persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen and do the things you did at first. If you don't repent, I will come to you and remove the lampstand from its place. The book of Revelation was written by the Apostle John. Tradition has it that Ephesus was his residence both before he was imprisoned in Patmos and he returned there afterwards. I can imagine the church at Ephesus were really chuffed to get that revelation when he came back. But it's ironic that the apostle of love, the very one who laid his head on the breast of Jesus at the Last Supper, should become a member of a church which became so unloving and orthodox. Everything appeared to be do- right at Ephesus, they were doing all the right things, apparently. But obedience without passionate love for Jesus can quickly become good works. The spiritual vitality of the Ephesian church, which sprang from love for God, had degenerated into orthodox routine. We know that lukewarm devotion is not acceptable to Jesus. Cold springs can be refreshing. Hot mineral springs can be medicinal. Lukewarm water is nauseating. You can be born again. You can work hard. Work hard in church. Do all the things that need to be done. You can be a Bible-toting, hand-waving son of God and still not truly know or be affected by the Father's love. Father God... Loves you f- extravagantly. In the story of the prodigal son, one of my favorite stories, Jesus is giving us a picture of the father's heart. Prodigal means recklessly extravagant, one who gives or spends lavishly. The story could rightly be called the prodigal father rather than the prodigal son. And I think Jesus is reminding us that a wild and careless extravagance is characteristic of him and the Father. Tom sent me this quote from a book by Roland rollheiser God, as we see in both nature and the scriptures, and know from experience, is overgenerous, generous over-lavish, over-extravagant, over-prodigious, over-rich, and over-patient. If nature, the scriptures, and experience are to be believed, God is the absolute antithesis of everything that is stingy, miserly, frugal, narrowly calculating, or sparing in what he doles out. God is prodigal, wastefully extravagant, and lavishly abundant. That certainly describes the God that Jesus incarnates and reveals. Jesus was never precise, calculating, and sensible when he gave his love and his life for each of us on that dark hill on Golgotha. Don't underestimate God's love for you. Tom, I'm rounding up. Mary of Bethany was extravagant in the use of her time. Her priority was to be with Jesus. He came first in her life. She was extravagant in her love and her worship. The expense of giving her treasure and the risk to her reputation was of no consideration to Mary. Mary's actions may have disturbed those around her. But look at the consequences. In Matthew 26, 13, Jesus says, I tell you the truth. Wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world... What she has done will also be told in memory of her. Extravagant sacrifice for the sake of Jesus will have perpetual influence. Isn't that worth thinking about when you're challenged to reconsider where your primary focus is? Whether there's a place for extravagance in your life?